Let me just read a quote for you that I came across this week before I begin. It's an old quote. It goes like this. My preaching, and I just, this is, let these be as my words. My preaching almost always displeases me. For I am eager after something better, of which I have often had an inward enjoyment before I set about expressing my thoughts in audible words. Then when I have failed to utter my meaning as clearly as I conceived it, I am disappointed that my tongue is incapable of doing justice to what my heart has seen. What I myself understand, I wish my hearers to understand as fully. And I feel I am not so speaking as to affect this. The chief reason is that the conception lights up the mind in a kind of rapid flash, whereas the utterance is slow, lagging, and far unlike what it would convey. And that was spoken by Augustine um, almost 2,000 years ago. And, and, and he was a, a brilliant orator, uh, of which I could not remotely compare myself. So uh, there it is, but... I always keep this at the forefront of my mind that the, the illumination lights up the mind, but when we communicate it, it's so difficult. And so I pray God's spirit to enlighten our hearts and to light up as a flash, as it were, in our hearts as we hear his word. Acts 13, 1 to 3. We're just doing three verses this morning. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas, and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Father, I pray that as we look into your word, that you would illumine our hearts, even as my words are slow and lacking. Uh, we pray that your spirit would write them on our hearts and make them known to us, um, reveal to us Christ and his work and his worthiness as we look into your word. And we thank you for this opportunity, asking all this for the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen. In the book of Acts, just as a bit of a disclaimer, we can sometimes fall prey to the desire to follow particulars instead of patterns. So that one more time. In the book of Acts, it can be tempting to fall prey to follow particulars instead of patterns. And that is <clears throat> to forcibly try to apply elements of the text or particulars from the text from the uh, micro picture and often miss the big picture. And that's one of my great goals as we go through the book of Acts is to give us the big picture and to lay down the pattern for the church because we know that parts of ministry have changed since the book of Acts was written and in the context in which it takes place. And that is the ministry of the apostles and the prophets as it speaks. And so this verse begins with the church at Antioch. And we see prophets and teachers and it gives us a list of names who are here at this church. Now, I don't think this was the totality of the church. I don't think it was just these four people saying, oh, I hope our church grows soon. The church at Antioch was bigger than these characters, but I believe that these characters are actually given as the specifics of that title, prophets and teachers. That's not exactly explicit in the text, but my guess is that these are sort of the leaders in the church. 
And one of the clues to that is that it lists Barnabas and Saul, who we know go on to be uh, incredibly predominant and um, sought after leaders in the church. And so there's this group at Antioch. They are led by, either in a prophetic sense or in the teaching sense, Barnabas and Simon. And uh, some people, sorry, Lucius of Cyrene and Manian, who's this lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, Herod the Tetrarch, this is the Herodian line that we spoke of a couple weeks ago, who, and I think Alan covered last week. This is the family line that we saw, kind of a godless leadership, pragmatic leadership, crowd control type of leadership, power-hungry, power-grubbing type of leadership. It's the same Herodian line which killed all the male children under the age of two in order to wipe out Christ, which they were unsuccessful in doing. This is all the same, the same Herodian line, which also began um, and it really accelerated the persecution of the early church, killing the first apostle. The first disciple of Jesus died at the hands of the sword uh, by Herod, who was the son of the Herod in Jesus' time. So it's a family line. And the same Herod who locked up Peter in an effort to appease the Jews, to make the Jews happy so that Rome would help keep him in power. And so this is not a good authoritative line to belong to. It's, it's sort of like a, a, a bad political dynasty. And I'll say no more of that. Um, but we see here a friend of this Herod. We see a friend of Herod the Tetrarch. He's now part of the church. He was a lifelong friend. He's kind of like a childhood buddy. Some of you have had friends for 20, 30, 40 years, and you know everything about each other's lives. We have that with Herod the Tetrarch. His old buddy now is in the church at Antioch. His old buddy, Menean. And and, and what is he doing in the church? And this is speculation, but I wonder if in the passage um, Alan covered last week, we saw Herod die for failing to acknowledge God Almighty. And we see this is the son of his lifelong friend. There's kind of this old guy who now sees his high school buddy's son ruling in an unworthy fashion, and God strikes him dead by the worm. And I wonder if this is some sort of warning to Manian here. And he heeds it, and he says, "This what they are doing is godless. I think I need to turn to the living God, and he joins the church. Now, that's speculation, but I think um, I'm not going to comment much more on the characters here and the leaders in the church. What I want to look at is the posture of the church. My, my, my sermon really only has two headings, two, two elements to the outline. We see the posture of the church and the result of that posture. It's very simple. It's only th- three verses. But the text shows us this church at Antioch, and this is going to be a very important location through the book of Acts. So we want to really narrow in on this sending church in Antioch. They become very central to the life of the church throughout the book of Acts. And again, we notice that Peter's ministry has now faded from view, right? At the end of chapter 12, Peter is out of the picture. The chief apostle, the one who was on the mountain with Jesus, is out of the picture, That reminded us that uh, however important we may be, the church will go on without us, right? Um, And yet we can so take comfort that God has seen our work and has uh, been with us in it, as significant or insignificant a character as we might be. And so the narrative really turns to Paul now and Barnabas, and, and this is sort of the launch pad for their ministry. 
The text tells us that this church, at, under the leadership of these men, were worshiping the Lord and fasting. They were worshiping the Lord and they were fasting. Now, I'm going to quickly jump out of the context here to help us with this posture of the church a little bit more. This is the ESV that I study out of, for the most part, gives us this word worshiping. But the New American Standard Bible, which I keep close at hand because it's a more literal rendering of the translated text, the Greek text, and so I like to keep it for word accuracy, it gives us the word or the phrase, rather, they were fasting and ministering to the Lord. The ESV takes that and shrinks it down to this word, worshiping. And I think, especially in our culture, we need to get a handle on this word, worship. Because, man, is it ever a word that is maligned and misunderstood. Um, in our modern parlance, we often just speak of the word, worship, to talk about music. Oh, worship was really good this morning, and they're referring to Rebecca or... Pam or something like that, right? And it's like, that was good worship. As if to distinguish it from the rest of our corporate gathering, the rest of our time in prayer and in, and in word study and communication and in intercession for one another and in um, financial contribution, as if none of those things are worship as well. Now, to get more specific, this phrase, ministering to the Lord, is an Old Testament phrase. It's an Old Testament concept, and we know that the church was formed in this, out of the soil of the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. They are very much pertinent and relevant to the book of Acts. And so these leaders in the church were ministering to the Lord. Now, what does ministering mean? It was a priestly phrase. In the Old Testament, they had a, they had a priestly line, the Levites, who were in charge of interceding for God's people before God. They were the go-between between God and his people. They would offer sacrifice. They would offer incense and prayers. And in Leviticus 9, and you should read that this afternoon, it's, a, it's the beginning of the ministry of the priesthood. And it involves the slaughtering of sacrificial animals, the shedding of their blood. They would, they would sprinkle blood on the tabernacle curtain, the veil, before they entered to worship God. There's this blood ceremony associated with the ministry of the priests. It was known as a ministry. Not, not everything is referred to as a ministry in the Old Testament. And so we have this priestly phrase being dropped in here in the New Testament church. Now, does that mean that Paul and Saul were ministering and they were slaughtering animals here in the New Testament church. Well, before we go on to what they were doing, I want to carry forward, and in fact, carry backwards a little bit this idea of ministering to. And there's, the Bible is important to understand antecedents. That's a kind of a fancy word to say, what did this mean before we read it? Or, or, or are there things hiding under the surface here that we don't know in the context of the text, but we can go back and get a more rich version of it? And so the antecedent for the priestly ministry was almost revealed in this guy named Abraham. If you're quick with your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 22, because I want to find out what the church was doing here. I want to find out how we can have the same posture as the church in Antioch. 
Abraham, you know, was the, uh, is the father of faith. He's called that in the New Testament. Uh, Genesis 22, 1 through 5. Abraham had a difficult calling of God. He had a nice place um, up in Uz with his family. And God came to him and he said, Abram, which was his name at the time, God changed his name. He said, I want you to leave your people and go to a land that I will show you. And he does. He gets up and he takes his belongings with him and he brings along his nephew Lot. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. He literally just calls him out. There's one guy with his wife, no children. He says to Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. He received a promise from God. And without telling you the whole story, that child did not come about quickly or easily. There was a lot of family drama in there. There was a lot of doubt. There was a lot of, there was even sin in there on Abram's part. But eventually God fulfilled his promise to Abram and he gave him a son. He gave him one son named Isaac. And this is after he had uh, a, a son with a, what are they called? A, a maid of his, of his wife. A concubine, yeah. And he had this other child with Hagar. And I said, no, 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 that's not the child I wanted to give you. I want to give you a child through your wife and you. And they were very old, like very old, older than all of you. So That one's really old. Yeah, they were old. And so he gets this son finally. Abram finally gets his son. And I want to pick up here at Genesis 22. And he says to Abram, after these things, God tested Abraham, have you ever been tested by God? He tested Abraham and he said, Abraham said, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son, your only son, through whom the promise is supposed to come, right? This great nation. Take your son, whom you love. I don't like the way this is starting, right? God testing you and he says, what's up? And he says, take your daughter, your son, the one that you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you. This is an awful test from Abraham's standpoint. So how does Abraham respond? He rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering. Here he is preparing to obey God. He's preparing. He's gotten up early. He's chopping the wood. He's getting ready to offer his son as a burnt offering because God told him to. And on the third day, Abram lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. He saw the mountain that God was showing him. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. And this is the key phrase. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And so the end of that story is, amazing he goes up he's he's ready to sacrifice his son because he believes god will raise his son from the dead now incidentally child sacrifice is an abomination to god and god would never ever call on us to sacrifice a human it's one of the most heinous evils that in god's eyes to shed innocent blood now this story has tremendous implications on what god did with christ his own son but i i don't have time for that. But what I want you to see is that this sacrifice, Abraham saw as worship. We're going to go over there and worship God in this sacrifice. Now, that's sort of an antecedent to the priestly ministry 
of animal sacrifice later after the law came to Moses and to the people of God that came from Abraham. Now, what is my point in all of this? I know this is a digression. It's an, this is our Old Testament context. We see the ministry of the priest as sort of a development of what Abraham was asked to do. God actually provided a goat or a ram for Abram, for Abraham. He, he said, don't hurt the child. I'll provide the sacrifice. And there was a ram caught in the thicket, and they sacrificed the ram. And then the boy and Abraham returned to the young man, just as he said, we will go worship, and then we will return to you. And they did. So what's going on here? The church is gathering to minister to the Lord. Now what I'd like to show you about this is that I believe that this is a, this is a form of worship that is ceremonial. It's devotional. It's organized. And it's formal. There is a formal element to worship when the church gathers. It's an intentional, thoughtful planned out part of our Christian lives, and it does not take place in every single moment of our lives. I believe that the gathered church does this in a way that is separate from the way that the Bible speaks of worship as being everything that we do. Romans 12, chapter 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual act of worship. There's that same word there, but that's sort of a different concept where Paul is saying to his listeners, let your bodies be the sacrifice. In other words, let your entertainment, let your job, let your um, pleasures, let your sexual lives, let everything be an act of worship to God. So every moment of your lives indeed are worship. But I believe that what the church is doing here when it gathers is ministering to the Lord in a way that we don't do when we're on our own in the car or whatever. We may be worshiping him, but there's a specific notion of ministering to the Lord that the gathered church participates in. And so this is why we so emphasize and we so value the gathering on Sunday mornings. This is why I'm happy we have a podcast and you know, I'm happy that there are ministries that you can access online, but there is no replacement for the gathering of the church. There's no replacement for being together to formally minister to the Lord as, a, as an assembled group. It, 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 is, it is the ministering to, it's the active, formal worship of the church that is spoken of here in the book of Acts in, in the church in Antioch. Now, this is sort of where the rubber meets the road a little bit. What is the content of that worship? So we, so we come to minister to the Lord. What are we doing? How do we minister to the Lord as we get together? I mean, so many of us, are, we're busy, right? We, we don't come having planned out much. We've, we've barely gotten the Cheerios wiped off our kids' chins before we get out here or we slept in or you're stressed about going to work tomorrow. And it's like, how, like, if you want, if you want me to be like a Levitical priest in my particularity and how I worship, that's going to be tough, Tim. I mean, how are we going to manage that as a church? Well, what's the content what is the content? And, and I'm so excited about where the scriptures lead us here. What was worship with Abraham? Why, why a sacrifice? Why a blood sacrifice for Abraham? Why blood sacrifice for the Levites? It was ministry to the Lord in, in the sense that it was a celebration of and a remembrance of how God makes us acceptable to him. 
Blood was given to us as a sacrifice, as a way of shedding blood, as a way of almost in a small j sense, justifying us before God. It was a way to remind the people of Israel, you have sinned. You are not like God. You fall short of who God is. Your life is marred with sin and sinful desire. Even if your life looks good on the outside, you're marred with sinful desire. So what does blood do? It reminds the people that God is holy. And that our worship is acceptable to him because of blood sacrifice. It's a celebration that God has provided it for us. The Levitical system was not invented by Moses. He wasn't like, oh, this would be a great religion. We'll kill a bunch of animals and we'll make a certain group do it all the time and they'll be covered in blood. This is not a human invention. This is from the mind of God given to us. It's a form of worship because it draws us near to God. It reveals who he is. It is a total act of grace of God that he would set forth this pattern for worship. Now, how do we bring this forth into the New Testament? I I hope I've all but painted it for you. We sang it. Rebecca sang it out for us this morning. Christ is mine forevermore. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Jesus Christ is the advent of God's final sacrifice. John the Baptist, when he saw Christ, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We read a couple weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 9, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, but Christ's blood, he entered the holy place once and for all and cleansed us from our, from, of our consciences of dead works. It is the blood of Christ as the New Testament church gathers. This is the ministering to the Lord. This is the worship that we do. We center around Jesus Christ. We exalt him. We focus our eyes on him. We sing of him and his work. We sing of the redeeming power of the blood of Jesus Christ. We sing of the ongoing priestly ministry of Jesus Christ to intercede for us. We praise Christ. He is the center of our worship now. Why? Because he is the center of worship of all the universe for eternity. Revelation chapter 4 and 5 gives us a picture of the praise in heaven. The worship that's going on in heaven. And there's this title deed to the earth. It's a scroll that is rolled and sealed seven times. It's the title deed to the earth. And they are weeping because they can't find anybody who's worthy to take the earth for himself. And then I was comforted, said John, because we found one who was worthy. And these are the words. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. What makes Christ worthy? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So when we gather as the church to minister to the Lord, or as the ESV translates it, to worship, we center around, we celebrate, we declare, we cry out, thanksgiving for the blood of Jesus Christ. For it has made him worthy in all of eternity to own the earth which is our inheritance. So Christ is our central 
activity as we minister to the Lord. When we come, we are a priesthood now. Instead of recreating the sacrifice of the Levites, we recall the sacrifice of God. We don't recreate the blood sacrificial system. We recall the fulfillment of the blood sacrificial system in Christ. We recall. When we celebrate the Lord's table at the end of this service, we are reminded that whenever we eat and drink of those things which remind us of his blood and body, we proclaim, we remember. It's a ceremony of remembrance and proclamation. So that is how we minister as the church here in the 21st century. That's how we minister to the Lord. That's how we worship. That's why we worship. It's why we worship. And the seriousness of worship has just been a theme in these last couple weeks through where Alan preached and where this is going, that the church gathers truly to worship. Our number one purpose for gathering is worship, to minister to the Lord, to exalt in and enjoy Christ. I mean, it's not something we have to force. Romans chapter 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because his blood was shed. So when we come to celebrate and exalt Christ because of his sacrifice, it's because we're cleansed. It's because we remember God has made us right, made us right with him. The word for that in the Bible is reconcile. Where we were once enemies of God, by the blood of Jesus, we are now friends of God, just like Abraham was, a friend of God. And so worship is only natural as the posture of the church. It's a house of worship. It's a house of thanksgiving. So this is the posture of the church. Now, what else were they doing? They were fasting. They were fasting. This is a spiritual act of setting aside some pleasure or necessity to more deeply enjoy something else. It's to diminish our sense of one thing to heighten our sense of another thing. Have you ever had hearing impairment or uh, visual impairment or something? I'm told that your other senses are heightened. You know, if you go around with a blindfold on for a day, your sense of hearing will be so acute. And uh, blind people who, who can't see, they, they often rely on just the, the touch, the vibration of those sticks they carry on. Their other senses are heightened. And so fasting is the setting aside of one sense to pursue more deeply something else. And in the Christian church, people all over the world fast. I mean, it's, it's got health benefits. Those are incidental to the practice. In the Christian church, fasting is to seek the Lord. It's to, it's to receive and seek his attendant power in the church. Fasting is also most closely associated with prayer. You don't really see pa- uh, fasting without prayer in the Bible. And, and really, that, that's the purpose of setting aside food, is to devote yourself. I mean, it takes a long time to make a meal, right? It even just saves time, which is great. And so you go to the Lord in prayer. And the church is doing this in a formal sense. Friends, prayer, this, this, this desperation of the church to set aside their food, to seek the Lord, is non-negotiable. It's not, a, it's not a plus or minus in a church. I read on Twitter the other day, not that I get all my theology from Twitter, but... The degree to which a church prays is the degree to which a church trusts God to do things that it can't do. How easy it is to go about our routines and to never consider to petition God for his work in the church. And I wonder in some sense, you know, as a corporate church, if there was some sense of setting aside pleasure or necessity for a time to pray that we would see the attendant power of God move in our midst. And, and I, I encourage us in that. 
We have a fantastic prayer meeting at 930 um, every single Sunday morning here. And, and it's just a time to call out to God and to prepare our hearts for worship and to ask him to do more to bring about more fruit of repentance, to bring about more fruit of endurance, to comfort us, to, to bring about salvation of the lost. I mean, if church is, is this serious to God, it ought to be that serious to us. Now, here's the deal, and I know this um, through people talking to me, and I know this just through personal experience, that prayer is hard sometimes because we're just lost. We just don't know what to pray. We don't know what to say. We would love to show up at a prayer meeting, but we're like, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray for. And I just want to take you through a brief tour because I think this is such a practical thing for our church to grow is to really dig our teeth into prayer. And I know that we don't have a separate prayer meeting on a Wednesday night, but we don't need to right now because we, we have time to pray together. And so let me just take you through just a brief tour from this guy, Saul, who later identified as Paul. He happened to go on to write a whole bunch in the New Testament. And so he's part of this church at Antioch that's praying and fasting. And he goes, and that becomes a massive part of his ministry. Almost every single letter he wrote began with some form of prayer. You should read the New Testament with an eye for how Paul prays and what he's praying for. This can be a guideline for your prayer life. And for our prayer life as a church. I mean, when we pray to get together, what are we praying? Oh, Lord, I hope taxes go down. Uh, you know, I just hope that the weather holds out until my sailing trip is done. There are things that are certainly dear to us, of course, but how are we praying as a church? How are we ministering to the Lord together? First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.4, Paul says, I give thanks to my God, that's prayer, for you. People. Okay, people are the center of Paul's prayer because of the grace that God has given to you in Jesus Christ. So he thanks God for the people around him because of what God did in their lives, that he has made them brothers and sisters. Ephesians 1.16 says, I do not cease to give thanks to you, to the Lord that is, remembering you in my prayers. So Paul doesn't stop praying. And again, it's people-centric. It's around people. He's praying for people. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may what? What's his prayer? May give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So we pray that God would grant deeper knowledge and deeper wisdom in his ways. There's another way that you can pray for people and yourself and your family and your life. Colossians 1.3, Paul says, Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom, very similar to the Ephesian prayer, and understanding, and then... Down in verse 10 in Colossians chapter 1, it's the so, so that. Why does he pray that they would be filled with knowledge and wisdom? So that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So we can pray that people would walk in a manner worthy of Christ and of the calling. That's a way we can pray for each other. Colossians, again, in the same book, 4, 2 to 4 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. As in, look around, check in on your prayers, pay attention with thanksgiving. Here's another prayer Paul has. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So pray for missionaries. Pray for the open door opportunities for you in your workplace and us as Christians in our daily lives. That's another way we can pray. God, give us open doors. Are you writing this down? This is how you can pray in the church and for the church. I'm sorry? 
That's Colossians 4, 2. Pray that a door would be open for the word. Last one, 2 Thessalonians 1, 11. This one's going to be harder to pray. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Now that sounds good, right? That God would fulfill our resolve for good works. Do you know how he makes us worthy in, that, in the context of that chapter? Through suffering. He would make us worthy through suffering. That's hard to pray. God, make us worthy because so often there is attendant suffering associated with that. Are we really praying the way the New Testament church should pray? Are we praying that God would keep us from discomfort or are we praying that God would make us worthy of his calling? How can our prayers be shaped? When we come together to minister to the Lord and to pray, what are we praying for? Scripture gives us every, every possible uh, way that we should know how to pray. And so this is what the church is doing. This is their posture. Now what happens? What happens in the midst of this environment? What happens in a church where they are ministering to the Lord together and that they are praying according to God's will? The Holy Spirit said, that's exciting. God is at work in the church that has this posture. God is attentive to and active in these churches. We see in the book of Revelation, Jesus is actually walking amidst his churches. He's there with his church. He's walking among the lampstands. God is with his church. Now, that presence is not guaranteed. Jesus says, I will take away your lampstand if you do not repent, if you do not come to be the church that is worthy of what I've called you to be. But certainly, in a church where this is going on, God is at work, and God is speaking through his Holy Spirit, and he is doing work. He is activating people to go be missionaries. So two men are separated out from this environment. What's the environment? It's a church that's seeking the kingdom. I mean, it's hard when you're getting together and your prayers are just for triviality and, and your life is significant. I'm not saying the details of your life are insignificant or the cold that your son has or the, the, you know, the things that we have planned. Those are all significant things. But what does the Bible, what does Jesus tell us to do? Seek first the kingdom and then the other stuff will take care of itself. So our priority must always be how can the kingdom advance? How can we see God's work come in a greater degree? And in this environment, people hear from the Holy Spirit and they are sent off and their names are Saul and Barnabas. And now these men, uh, God shows very specifically, these are men full of conviction. In fact, so much conviction that they would later split because they were so each bent on their own. Like, this is what God wants. And so they actually split. Now, that's not a, a blessing to split ministries, but certainly... These men are full of conviction. They want to see God move. They want to see churches planted. They are on fire for the kingdom of God and the mission of God. And they're called out. Now you think, oh, wouldn't that be exciting to be called out by God, by the Spirit? Me next. I want to do that. Listen to how Paul describes this calling in 1 Corinthians 1 8. Oh, 2 Corinthians 1 8. Listen to how Paul describes this calling. This is a good one to write down. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we, 
were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Which means it, it looked like there was no way out. That word despaired of literally means no exit. We thought this was, we thought we were done. We despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. The dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. What's the fulfillment of that? Well, it's Jesus Christ. But friends, they were called out to a deadly ministry. Paul lists the way that he was abused and abandoned and nearly destroyed on near countless occasions as an apostle of Christ. The call of, of God on these two men is not you know, to go you know, sit in an office and write letters to people. This was to go out and, and, and face the pagan world and be nearly killed for the message of the gospel. I found this quote from John Piper that said, If you are sufficient for your task, in other words, if you are, if you are good enough for your task, your task is too small. I love that. It stinks to actually believe it because you know what? As I pastor and, and plant this church, I want to feel good enough to do it. I want to feel like I have the strength, I have the time. You know, just this past week, I had to say, I, I can't work as much. Uh, I, I need to be home with my wife because her health is at stake. Her life may be at stake. And it's just like, why are we so weak? Why is God called the weak? We despaired even of life itself, but this was to make known that we are relying on God and not ourselves. And so God calls out of this environment people to serve him. And he does not call the strong. He calls the weak. If he calls the strong, he'll make you feel weak eventually. <laughs> so that's, that's the way that goes. And so they were set apart. The Spirit said, I want these two. Now, I want you to see something else, too, that I think the reason why these leaders are shown at the beginning is because this is shown that this is leader-driven. These are the leaders in the church praying and fasting and seeking the Lord. Um, this is not necessarily just a pure grassroots movement where it's all just hunky-dory. Right? There, there is leadership, and there is a, there is a direction coming from leaders, and I, and I cannot help but see in our church context the blessing that it is to have godly men as elders. It is not an issue of authority or, or, or control, but it is an issue of direction and humility. And so I just, I thank God that he has laid this out and that, and that in our church we are obeying, you know, Titus chapter 1 to install elders because we see God is just using this environment. He's using these elders and these leaders. And so out of this environment, men are sent out uh, for this mission and and. It says, to the work that I have called them. That's, sorry, I, I forgot to mention that phrase. To the work which I have called them to. That's where that 2 Corinthians 1.8 comes in. What's the work? It's demanding, difficult, almost suicidal work. And yet they go to it and they are um, commissioned by the church. So what happens? What happens out of this environment? After fasting some more and praying some more, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now this is a wonderful pattern that we see in scripture as well. This laying on of hands. Is it mysterious? Does the Holy Spirit go from one hand into the body? Something like that. I don't know. I don't really particularly believe that, but I think it's a sign of the church's commissioning of somebody for some purpose. 
The church is saying, we agree with what we heard in the Spirit. We agree with what you are saying, where you are being called, and we are with you. Paul would later say to Timothy, the reason why the church lays hands on, I think, is when that person later on in deep doubt and despair in their ministry can look, you know, what, what am I doing? Why did I ever go out? Why did I plant this church? Why did I go out on this journey? Why did I go to this country for missionary purposes? And they look back and they remember the church was there saying, we believe this is of God. We are with you. Paul says to Timothy, who's a young preacher like me, uh, he said to Timothy, don't be shy and stir up the gift that was given to you by the laying on of hands. That's exciting. So when, when, when a preacher is feeling small and shy and scared to get in the pulpit, they remember the people who said, this is what God has for you. And it's one more day of getting up and doing the same thing, even though it's hard and difficult. And Timothy experienced that. And Paul later says to Timothy in the same book, he says, but don't lay hands on too quickly either. Don't just rush to say to somebody, yeah, yeah, we need you to do this. God wants you to do this. Let's lay hands on and commission you. So in both senses, the laying on of hands is absolutely necessary. But at the same time, we ought to be not too hasty in doing it. Why? What's the principle here? The principle is that either way, the church is the one who is standing behind that worker. Every great missionary, every great preacher or church plant ought to come from another church. In almost every circumstance, it's the pattern that God gives us because then the church is there in the background standing by as accountability, as support, as love, as ascending church, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing. And so Paul says, don't give that authority away too quickly, but don't not give it out because they need it. They also need it. I know that I need it. I I lean on those who have affirmed my work here at Evergreen. I lean on them tremendously. I go back to them and they say, I'm not, I say, I'm not good. I can't do this. I'm, I'm, I'm broke. I'm, 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 I'm dis, I'm spent. I can't do this. And they say, God is, God is doing it. That's why you're here. They remind me, God is doing it. We have, we've sent you and we're behind you. We're with you. We lean on the church to remember these things. And so the church is so critical and it's so functional. I mean, don't we think like, oh, we're such a small, we're so insignificant. But no, God has given us tremendous ability to stand behind those who are serving Christ and to stand strong. Now, here is the catch. This has to be a church that is worshiping in the right way. This has to be a church that is first seeking the things above, seeking the kingdom of God, ministering to the Lord in Christ, elevating Christ as first and foremost. This is the church that is equipped and called to lay hands on and to send workers or commission workers. These are my closing thoughts. The church that is going to be effective for the mission of God is a church that is first consumed by worship for God. And I don't just mean sincerely doing whatever comes to mind. Just wing, oh, we all love God. We, just whatever we do is worship. No, it carries this really careful, thought out, intentional way of exalting Jesus Christ. We pick our songs carefully here that, that, they, would, that they would exalt Jesus Christ and see his work. We're careful about that because we want to be consumed with the right kind of worship and the right kind of prayer. But it's not just for no end. It's not just to cross our T's and dot our I's to be a better church than somebody else. It's not. 
It's to follow the pattern that a church that is consumed by this is a church that in the hands of God is powerful, is sent out, is effective for the ministry. It's a church that is consumed with the things that are important to God. Salvation of the lost, the purity of his people, continuation of worship. Now, in all this, I I, want to hopefully touch a question that you might be asking, which is, okay, this is a lot of big church talk. We've got to worship the right way. We've got we to live the right way. We've got to teach the right way. What about me? What about little old me in the church? Friends, I want to point you to the pattern of Scripture was that, is that when you are a believer, your weekly, daily devotion to the people of God will accomplish those things that you long for. Holiness, sanctification, uh, reconciled relationships knowledge of his word and of his will, fullness of the Holy Spirit, these things come about through the local church. I mean, doesn't that, it's like kind of setting a high bar for our church. I hope so. I hope our church is accomplishing this in your life and there are many more things that we need to do and I grant that and we're growing as a church and we don't do that very well in many areas yet. But we believe this is the vehicle that God has chosen to do that and so we ask that you would partner with us Devote yourselves to the ministry of, the, of to God and to prayer so that we will be this church that is equipping you and standing alongside you and serving you as well. Students, you're going back to school. I want to call you to set your heart on Christ. Set your heart on this ministry to God. Set your heart on Christ as your treasure. Because whether you're young or old, If our hearts are not set on Christ, we are tossed. We are thrown from our stability. We are thrown from our faith. Students, keep Christ as your treasure. We'll continue to pray for that. But I just ask as a church that we devote ourselves to prayer, to worship. Come to Sunday morning as best as your life allows. Prepared to engage in these realities. Prepared to engage in prayer. Prepared to engage in worship. Come to church ready. Again, as, as best as your life allows. I know it's, I know it's chaotic and difficult. He, he, he bids us come and to engage with the church in prayer and worship so that we would be ready and poised to respond to him. And that's an exciting reality. And at the center of all this is the right worship of Christ. And we are now going to remember him in his, um, in his death and resurrection. And Dean and Kevin are going to lead us in that. So I'd love to welcome them up.